Hello, and welcome to Making the Museum. I'm Jonathan Alger, and this is a project of C&G Partners, Design for Culture. Today, I am joined by David Greenbaum. David, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jonathan. It's great to be here. Great to have you. To get started, for those who don't know you, could you tell our dear listeners who you are and what you do in your own words? Sure. I have been a practicing architect for perhaps over 40 years, and 35 of those years have been really focused on museums. And I just really am very passionate about cultural projects, been fortunate enough to work on many of the museums of that initial model in Washington, D.C., and I have done work abroad uh, in France and in China and across the country as well. Very lucky to be doing that and have worked with so many great people in the past, including yourselves, to do very interesting projects. And where are you now? You don't, you don't have your own firm right now, right? You no, are- I've had, I've worked with Smith Group and I've been working also on my own, but now I'm working with Gensler and heading up the Southeast region for cultural practice and trying to grow in that office there and the cultural work that they're doing. And of course, Gensler's had some amazing projects, currently working on major things and have worked in significant projects in New York and Los Angeles and actually around the world. So it's really nice to join them. Very interesting set of colleagues and very thoughtful people that we work with. And I enjoy being part of that network as well. Yeah, it was Gensler is the, the, if not the, one of the largest architecture firms in the world. I think they may be the yeah. largest architecture firm in the world. That's and correct. I was amazed to realize when you're at that scale, of course, any one of your areas of practice are probably going to be that the biggest area of practice for any architecture firm in the world. And that's true for museums too. Yep. The uh, Gensler Museum's practice and cultural practice is, again, one of the biggest or, or biggest in the world, which is amazing to operate at that kind of scale. So how did you get into the museum's business specifically? Was that a deliberate step where you're like, I will do that? Or was it sideways like most of us who are on the show? I think as you, you start to join architectural firms and work with them and go through the internship, you work on a number of different projects. I worked on them major retail development. I've worked on office buildings. I've worked in a hospital. I've done all sorts of different projects, even on residential scale. And moved to Washington uh, after graduate school. And when in Washington, you, you can't help but be impressed by all the Smithsonian work and museums around us. And I think it, it didn't take long for me to appreciate the complexity of buildings that required programmatic development and had to be thought about from the inside out, not just from the outside in. And to me, it was it was just an additional layer of complexity that I felt helped me intellectually grow. And you add on the addition of storytelling and trying to create an institution, those were or help embellish the impact of an institution. I think those were really important to me and was able to, frankly, was lucky enough to work on the National Post in Music, which was the first museum project, and we actually won a National AIA Award for it. It was done at the time when the Holocaust Museum was under design 
uh, James Freed, and it was interesting to see, at least in my mind, the parallels of using architecture to help tell a story. And that was, I thought, wow, what a great place to start down that line of working with museums. And it's been a constant in my life ever since, which has been great. So the, the part of the architectural work that you've been doing that's been museum-related itself is, you said, almost three dozen years or something like that. You've been you've been learning how to build a museum longer than most people practice at all. And so I have a question before we get into some of the well, some of this, we're going to talk about really some fundamental principles about how to build a museum here, which the show is called Making the Museum. So this is perfect. This is the perfect topic. But I wonder, I have a meta question because I, I know what our talking points are going to be. Do you think, reflecting on that time, you're still doing things now all the time as well. Do you think those fundamental principles themselves have changed or are they so evergreen that what you're going to reveal to us today would be advice you would have given your younger self during the Postal Museum as well. They're all still the same. Are they that evergreen? I don't know that I would have had the wisdom to understand what those core components were, to be honest with you. Back then, I was very focused on how we tell the story of the design and express the imagery of the Postal Service in the architecture. But I don't know that I add the experience to reflect on the broader mission and the importance of the work we do. Part of that is is through experience. Part of that grows out of that experience that we, we had on that project. And part of it's maybe intuitive to some degree, but yet it all comes together. And I guess that's what experience teaches us in many respects. And then we start to call out some of the things that maybe aren't as critical or able to look at from a higher altitude and vantage point. So some of the advice that you're going to talk about today in this show, sounds like it's equally applicable to architects that are starting out in this sector or this industry now or are part way along or whatever, but almost like if you could go back in time and give this advice to yourself, you would as well. I, I think so. Yeah. And we're going to just, i sure, in the time that we have, just begin to touch on some of the brief things. They're just, museums are inherently complex. There are so many people involved and different agendas, and it's always hard to know where to spend the time to focus and how to get alignment. Everyone has its own idiosyncrasies that we work on. And even though you come at these projects with great experience, it doesn't always assure success, and it doesn't always assure that you'll know the answers to the problems that are going to be in front of you. Let's just get right into it. Our topic for today is how to build a museum. And as always, I know the list, but not much more. And my guest has the rest. I have to admit that your first point completely took me by surprise, so much so that I, I had to just double check if I knew what the definition of it was. So I remember my high school French. This is not... <laughs> A point that you would think an, a museum architect would, I don't know, whatever you might think that you'd be about to say, you wouldn't necessarily think this would be the first thing, but it is your first thing. And point number one of how to build a museum is the importance of esprit de corps. And that is, I had to, I had to go check to look it up, fancy term, which <laughs> is esprit de corps, French, a feeling of pride, fellowship, and common loyalty shared by the members of a particular group. Do I have that right? And tell us about what that means to you, and most importantly for me, why that's first. 
Mm-hmm. No, I, we can always juggle the order, but what struck me, and I learned this lesson, oddly enough, from Carrie Summers at the Museum of the Bible. And this was a man that I think knew how to keep people in balance and on their toes, but he also knew how to bring people together and be a positive influence on a broad team. And I think these projects that we work on take a long time, four or five years, six years in the making, some even longer. And I think positive energy, a a feeling of support, making a project fun to work on is really helpful. I think you get a lot out of the team. I think it, it builds a sense of encouragement. Uh, and I think the client needs to come to this project with clear vision and ambition. That's helpful. At the same time, it's nice that they should have some high expectations and, and some drive and passion about what they're doing. And, and we all know these projects have a lot of hurdles and they're going to happen over the path of development. And I think these really help get people past some of these difficulties and if people feel included in, in part of the team. We do this. It's not just work. It is something we believe in, and I think many of us want to see institutions succeed. And I I think that's all part of the development. And and you want to come out of these projects, not just with a a great design, but but to make sure that the institution you did the work for succeeds. To me, it all has to do about the spirit of team building and bringing people together and doing the best you can to make something happen. And I know many of us have been on jobs that have been less than pleasant, and we know what that's like. So that's why this is important, I think, to There's me. There's a few things there I want to unpack, because I think mm-hmm. I know what you're talking about. But one thing, I, I want to come back to how you've seen it created. How do you create esprit de corps with a group of people that, when you begin a project, they're thrown together, they may not know each other. But my first question is something you just mentioned in passing, that you, the client themselves, have a role in this core in the group that has to have esprit and they they're invited on a project that you would do to come with high expectations mm-hmm. now that's interesting because some people might say please come with low expectations so that we can more easily exceed them why would you why do you ask your clients to come with high expectations well i think we want to come with these projects and make a difference we want to be challenged and maybe struggle with the problem a little bit and do something better. And I appreciate that. And I do remember meeting, again, I'm going to draw the uh, analogy to Carrie, who would say, you know what, if when you show me something, if I don't feel that energy and excitement in the first 30 seconds, I'll know you don't have it. And it'll make us go back and look again. And I think that was really interesting. And I think I think we all know this when we see something that resonates with us and we feel like it it connected. And he was just sharp enough to make that realization that you could always do better. And I think that's an important uh, aspect that I always try to have the team recognize and make sure we're hitting on all cylinders. I think that's really important. And again, it's, it's striving to do better all the time. And I think that's part of the part of what keeps us improving. So that's an important component. So it sounds like in, in, our, in the architecture profession, 
We would have critiques and we would have pinups and we would have peers looking at our work and our supervisor looking at our work and et cetera. And so there's this inherent in any professional services realm, true in medicine, true in law, whatever, there is this sort of sense of peer review, peer accountability, everyone pushing each other higher for the sake of doing it and staying ahead of the game. But you're welcoming the client in there too. You're saying, we want you to actually be a pretty smart cookie and to be challenging us as well as much as we're challenging one another. It's a, it's an interesting perspective. First of all, am I getting that right? Because it's not necessarily what a doctor might say, right? If you imagine a surgeon, they, they don't necessarily want the client to lean up off of the surgery table and say, by the way, have you considered doing it this way? But am I getting that right? First of all, you it, really you, want the client to be participating. You are. And I remember talking to Frank Gary about this a little bit. And he's always said he's has always had and created intense relationships with his clients. And, and I really think that kind of moment of making sure that we're solving their problem for them is really important in that there is that dialogue that's going on to make sure that the, we are taking them to a place that is really going to serve them well. And, and I think that part of discovery is really essential. And you can't do that without them, really, and not serve them well. So to me, I, that's always stuck with me as a, what does an intense relationship really mean? And how does that, intense in a good way, not in a bad way, and how do you make sure that you're really exploring all the nooks and crannies of the things you need to look at, and you're really fulfilling that vision that they have in mind? So that's where I think it, it needs to be. So if the client is part of the core that has esprit, the subject here is esprit de corps, how do you make that, right? People, maybe it used to be that if you were doing any kind of major architectural project, you would, you'd have to often travel far away with a whole group in a van well, to get to a site. And just by doing that and staying in a hotel and over, you, you get to know people. You would have that intense relationship you just talked about little- that, that maybe gives you something to fall back on when Later on, when you might professionally disagree, you can do so cordially because you have esprit de corps. You can challenge one another as colleagues instead of as in an antagonistic way. But now, when so much of the work that we do can be done at a distance, we're not physically with each other. We don't have those sort of little overlap moments or extra moments where we say, so where'd you grow up? Or, hey, are you eating that French fry? Or whatever it is that breaks the ice. How, how do you generate esprit de corps? Like you're calling for it. How do you make it on your projects? I think we are all trying to figure out what the balance is between virtual and actual, right? And being there in the softer moments and, and connecting personally is really important. So this is not, I don't know how to do this on a remote basis. I do think it could start with benchmarking and visiting projects together. But as I recall, and you probably recall, the Museum of the Bible and many other projects, the client would spend the time to bring everybody in that was working on this project from the corners of the country to visit and learn about what each of the other was doing. So communication is core. I think having those softer moments for breakouts, for meals and things are also important, but having the exchange sharing ideas about materials and concepts and stories and getting feedback on your own work is really important. So sort of that open exchange is really key. But it really comes down to communication. But I do think finding 
I think people do need to get together. I don't know that you can do it on Zoom. We can chat together on, on this call, but we also have behind us many times we have been together. So I think it allows us to break down some of those barriers. And I think building trust is really essential on these types of projects. And, and I think it's really difficult to do digitally without some greater awareness of the person you're doing business with. Um, in, in any case, let's say you could do it digitally, and I agree with you, I don't think you can do it very well digitally, but the main thing there is that in order to establish an esprit de corps, in order to work together, you need to spend time when you're not working together, together. Right. You were just mentioning breaking bread, or traveling together, or in between meetings, chatting, or just being around one another, yep. so that you, and I guess that's the way I was just thinking of it is that what you're advising is if you have that spirit of sort of a relationship, it, it gets you through some times that otherwise later on could be antagonistic or, wait a minute, I'm not, I don't know, I'm the the theater engineer on this project and you're the structural engineer on this project. And I think your, your structure is so big, you're taking all the money that I need. And instead of having that kind of a feeling, it would be more, oh, let me help you with the structure. Oh, let me help you with the, the theater engineering and all of that to make it just more that you're, I guess it's all in the name, esprit de corps, to make a group of people into a group of people. I had a, a thought as you're talking about this, Jonathan, and we all do these organizational diagrams of what the team looks like to see who's participating. And I think what these gatherings allow us to do is develop informal networks and short circuit those so that we're allowed to begin to provide the ability to cross over and have other conversations that can inform the work we're doing outside of that, not in a detrimental way, but way that allows us to cross-pollinate ideas more freely and create a safe harbor for that kind of dialogue. And I think that's really, that's really important. Again, we're all trying to figure out what the right paths are. And I think if you don't have those I'm not going to call them safety valves, but shortcuts. You can't call on anybody and say, what do you think about this? Or did you look at that? And you want that feedback to happen. So I think that's really essential. And we were starting with this. You started by talking about how much time you spent working on museum projects. And this is your first point. So I'm assuming that it's particularly important given what museum projects are, how long they last, how complex they are, how decentralized often a, a, a nonprofit or governmental or semi-governmental client can be that, that you have that esprit de corps because there's a lot of gray area and a lot of complexity and a lot of years yeah. that you're going to spend on that. And that's not true with every architectural project. Have I got that okay. right? That it's especially important in this industry, in this type of project. I, I think so. And with so many different participants and players, it is even more essential that we're all brought together in the same direction and constantly shepherding people in, 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 in hopefully will be either what kind of project steps that you need to take. I think that's really important. Many office buildings, you don't have that kind of thing. Hospitals, you may never touch all the folks that are going to operate and, or get involved with that kind of project. Educational access, and it doesn't always hit on all these players, but I think museums, because we have to deal with administration, we have to deal with the facilities people, we have to deal with the interpretive components and all sorts of levels of education staff. It's all part of, it's all intertwined as much as anything, I think. And I don't think there are many museums that follow the same sort of recipe and approach. So everyone is a little 
different and we have to create sort of a bespoke process to get through it. You said just a, a moment ago, also in passing, before we get on to the second point, you said right. something I want to come back to that your past, the past client, Carrie Summers, said to you, if, if I don't feel it, you're trying to present to me an idea that I'm you want me to say yes to, and I'm not feeling it in the first 30 seconds. I know you don't have it, and I'm going to tell you so. Do you think, is that sort of a thing? Is that just for that client, or is that like a canonical thing? If you don't get it in 30 seconds, I'm going to have to go back and redo it, because it's either going to hit or not hit that quick. I think he's right. And I bet most people that are listening to this podcast may reflect on their own experiences and say the same thing. I was, it was profound. And you'll look at something through a magazine or on the web, and you'll know right away when you look at it, wow, this is interesting. Let me look into this some more, or I'm just going to the next one. And I do think there's a gut reaction and an instinct that, that suggests what's going to appeal to you, what doesn't. And I'm, I think we need to listen to our spidey senses that tell us what is that trying to say to us and how do we understand it? And I'm, I pay attention to it when I have those moments. I think it's, if we use that rule, extend it, wow, we could, you and I could both do a lot shorter presentations because if we're saying like on any given point, anything we say after the 30 second mark, it doesn't matter because whoever we're talking to is either likes it or doesn't. We should just have every idea be presented for 30 seconds, move on to the next one, just keep going. And then the entire presentation is like seven and a half minutes long instead of an hour. I think there's something to that. It's interesting because in, in other realms, that is the case. If you think about it, if you're, I don't know, if you're watching major league sports and a commercial comes on for some product or something, it's 30 seconds. Right? Yeah. You're going to decide whether you're interested in that product or you like it or I'll try this new flavor in 30, you only got 30 seconds. Well, it, it, it's true, but I, I don't want to rule out the possibility of iterative development at the same time, because I think sometimes we'll hit upon an idea and it, it could be very profound, but we may not have expressed it clearly to the client. Maybe after the third time, I'm ready to go on to the next thing. So <laughs> I want to listen to it but also see what the feedback is. But sometimes if it's a big idea and it's just not resonant and then you may not have to go on to the next one. So yeah. It so could, it could be 30, it does not 30 seconds do or die. It's 30 seconds, get the critique and then either do something else or improve yeah, yeah. that thing. It's not a, a death sentence for the idea. Okay. I want to no, come back around not. on that. <laughs> Got to make sure we get all the, all the well, points down to, good, to good take question. back in time and give to your, give to the self when you started on the Postman Zoom. Okay. But, so but, point number two. Yeah. That for point number one is the importance of esprit de corps. Point number two, consider the full cycle. Okay. Consider the full cycle. And that's mission, vision, design, construction, operations. I think it's in that order. Mission, right. vision, design, construction, operations. And you finish this point by saying something ominous to make sure everyone pays attention, which is museums do fail. Need boom. So let's take this one at a time. When you, you say, yeah. consider the full cycle, what is the full cycle of what? Because full cycle of the project, cradle to grave, or what do you mean by full cycle? I, I'm going to insert the word life. So full life cycle. Museums are buildings are substantial investments. And as and the capital costs can be significant for a lot of these projects, but over a short um, operational costs can outstrip that. 
So I'm, I think it's important to think about the responsibility when we're designing to look at the project holistically, to understand the mission of, of what the institution's trying to achieve in that vision, but also think about the implications to maintenance and staffing and aspects of constructability and take that all seriously. I love brilliant concepts, but there is a there is a reality of, do you want this thing to be useful or is, do you want it to turn into a white elephant you know, several years down the road? And I think the more we consider that full life cycle, the longer these buildings will have a chance to stay in play and not have to be adapted and changed. And I think that's why I look at it that way and I also have to look at, in my mind, um, how much it's going to cost the institution to to run this facility and what they have to do to maintain it. Because you have too many entrances, they've got to put guards in place, and eventually over time they realize, oh no, we don't want that entrance, we're just going to lock the doors. And that changes the dynamic of the building and that whole visitor experience. So I think looking at that, looking at how certain things get maintained. And, and I know this seems very banal, but even just how do you change the light bulbs? There's silly things like that, but it's the end of the day, you want the building to look as good as it does on opening day, 10, 15 years down the road. And you want them to feel like they can own that facility and put the money where they need to in operations without the building being a burden. I take that very seriously when we do that kind of work. At the same time, I, I want to see a a design that's really compelling and engaging. I think that's really important as well. So that's definitely first and foremost, but it's got to work. And that's that's why I think looking at that full life cycle is so critical. Systems only last so long in a building and they have to be replaced and picking the right materials and picking the right systems is really important, I think, to make sure the building serves the client well for years to come. Could, could we back up and define a couple of terms for our dear listener? You just mm-hmm. mentioned capital, you just said capital expenses yep. may very well be soon outstripped by operating expenses. Let's just yeah. define both of those, capital sure. expenses and operating expenses. Capital costs, of course, are the cost of actually doing the building. That's not just the design services, but the construction costs and any borrowing costs that the owner has to actually see the building in place. So it's bricks and mortar. And- that can be several million dollars of the client's budget. And many times you'll have to go out and fundraise for that. It, that's easy to do when there's something to physically be seen. But when it comes to operating costs, if the museums don't have endowments, they're going to have to find funds to replace air conditioners and technology and pay for staff and all the sorts of things that come along with building operations, pay the utility bills. So you start to think about all the costs from year in, year out. Once the building's open, these are the operational costs that that we need to think about. And the building design has a lot of impact on that. Obviously, focus on sustainability has been good. Just begin to reduce the cost of energy. That's important. Your higher costs are going to be with staff and staff training and trying to figure out how to keep the exciting exhibits that have engagement in replacing projector bulbs, all those sorts of things are all part of that 
in technology which has a lifespan maybe of five, six, seven years has to be replaced. That's part of that. And that's an expense that even museums sometimes don't recognize as ahead of them once they've made a commitment. So again, it's important to point that out because that's going to be certainly on the menu five, six, seven years down the road or, and certainly beyond. There is a uh, sister newsletter to this podcast that I write, and one of the more popular editions of that was about a, a principle that I've used with clients. I, I ended up calling it the gerbil principle, which is that there are three aging speeds to consider in any project like those that we're talking about. And a, a building, the architecture, the part that, that you do, you can think of that as aging like an elephant. You may not need to completely replace a building or do something huge with its upkeep, rebuilding it or stripping the masonry off of it or whatever, except every 50, 75, 100 years, like a repointing a cathedral. And the next layer down is the interior finishes, you know, furniture and special finishes. And those age sort of like a golden retriever or a dog. Maybe 20 years you need to do something. It exhibits usually are planned to last shorter than that, but if they last 20 years, you, you definitely, they'll be showing their age for a number of reasons. And then the fastest aging speed is the age of aging speed of technology, specifically media or media experience technology, less about you know, boilers in the basement, that's technology, but yeah, and that's, that age is like a gerbil. In other words, come home from school one day and gerbil's not looking so healthy kind of a thing. It's only been a year and a half. We often counsel our clients, you have to recognize that there are those three aging speeds, embrace them, put all of them into your project, but just make sure that you're not accidentally building your building out of media technology, because that means that in terms of the serviceability, the operating expense, et cetera, no matter what your endowment is, if you build your entire building out of LED tiles, for example, you're building something that should have the aging speed of an elephant out of something that has the aging speed of a gerbil. So we call it the, the gerbil paradigm. And I don't know, I, I, I guess because I love, gerbil is a funny word, people tend to remember that and repeat it back to <laughs> us. But does that ring a bell? Oh, absolutely. It's a great story, the different scales of aging. I want to step back if I can, because I, I'm thinking now about something even before that, which is really, and I'll ask very frequently about business planning and all of the sort of attendance projections and things that clients are supposed to do before you start projects of this type. And the reason I want to go there, and I did mention the possibility of museums failing, is sometimes they start with the wrong assumptions. Sometimes they start with wild predictions of attendance that never happens. Sometimes they start with assumptions of, and I, I have a specific project in mind that the it depends upon the interactors and role players in a certain exhibit environment when in reality they can't afford to pay them and they may not know that yet. So these are the kind of things. Technology clearly has its own course, as you point out, with the different animal species. But these are the kind of big things that, that we have to ask ourselves if something doesn't quite feel right or press on it a little bit more. Sometimes you can't move it. and but. I Anything that impacts revenue and operations, I get concerned about because again, it doesn't, you want your buildings to succeed and be there in the long run. And of course, maintenance is only part of that. Part of that is also making sure that 
the incomes coming in, that they can do special events efficiently, that they can host a number of guests that are coming in the facility, and that we have, we've right-sized things so that, that those things can happen. Those are other things that I think about too, Jonathan, besides the, the, the physical aging of all that infrastructure that's put in place. Got it. Okay. So point number three mm -hmm. is, again, I think these are all points that I don't know. You might not, our listeners might not expect that someone who is in charge of architecture would have some of these points, but this one I think is terrific. I'd love to hear more about it. Number three, celebrate the uniqueness. Be bold, be subtle, be memorable. I think there's more to that than make a cool building, I'm sure, but say more. What do you mean by uniqueness? The uniqueness of what? The uniqueness of the of your client, of their collection, of their location, of your design? What, what does uniqueness mean there? Well, I think each museum project presents an opportunity to help distinguish itself in the community it serves. And, and I think those aspects of standing out, creating a unique experience, and I think it's incumbent on us to make sure that we're engaging the visitor and we're making them feel something when they come to this space. And to me, it all needs to go together. And this will tie into my other point coming up about creating one, ex there is only one experience. And I think whatever we do, I think these projects need to be memorable and they need to be engaging. There's so many places in the US as you drive along that just repeat every three miles and you think, oh God, another one of these. And I think museums have a place to really talk about a subject and have a point of view. And I think the architecture needs to reflect that point of view and stand out and communicate really the mission and the vision of, of what that institution's wow. about the best we can. And I don't know what that is in each case. It's always different, but I think that's incumbent on us as design professionals to think about that and make so, that happen. So you said be, be memorable here, but you also said be bold and be subtle. Well, how do, how do those both exist at the same time? I have an idea about that, but what's yeah, your take? I, I think we should always strive to be as bold as possible, but that may not always be the case. Maybe it has to be a more subtle intervention in some cases. And I think subtle, you know, if you look about, think about context of where we're doing the work, sometimes boldness is appropriate, but sometimes fitting in and trying to engage the visitor or something that's familiar with them may be a better approach. So there's not one approach to do this. I think it's just being open to the situation and figuring out what the right path is. But I still think you can still be subtle in the sense of being abstract, maybe, and not being literal in some cases, or maybe not using too much metaphor, but abstraction and design, that's ways to do that. Fortunately for us, we, we have a wide variety of tools to choose from. I know I answers part of this in my prior firm, where we were somewhat pluralistic in the ability to do design work because we don't have, we are not beholding to a certain signature style that many architects have that have their own style of investigation. So I think our ability to be more agile about how we solve a problem is really important. So I'm able to, in my mind, at least tune to those nuances that are important to the project or important to the existing building that we might be working with or a urban context or a rural context, whatever that is. So you I think, think that, do you think that's a result of 
because uh, I think what we're talking about here is that some, as you put it, sometimes you need to be bold and sometimes you, the subtlety could be the right answer. Sometimes visitors want something that's, wow, amazing. And other times they want something that's comforting and familiar. And some architects, yeah, have a, are, get hired because they'll always boggle your mind with a, some kind of crazy building that no one can take their eyes off of. And other architects get hired for the opposite, but you're, you're saying you get hired for one or the other or whatever is appropriate. Do you think that's the kind of thing that someone who specializes in a niche or a niche, never know how to pronounce this, that someone is in that area has the liberty to do. In other words, because you're doing museums, you want what's best for a museum. And because you know a lot about how to do that, you have many tools available to you. And so you can have many outcomes. Whereas an architect who doesn't specialize in museums is being asked to do one for the first time, has no choice but to do what they always do to it. Is that, is there... I guess what I'm the roundabout way I'm saying is it is it a good thing to be in a niche like you are you've been doing this for dozens of years and does that give you a kind of a perspective that's more pluralistic deeper richer produces a more appropriate outcome every time well I I think being agile helps I don't feel locked into any particular language although I would have loved to have developed one but I'm not I guess I I'm not sure. You can see many examples around the world that have been done many different ways, just sort of the way I've adapted and, and looked at the different challenges that we've had. And, but I also thought in graduate school, I realized that it was possible to take many ideas and develop them in, into a design. And I felt if I could extract that through levels of interpretation of museum content or museum storytelling, that was a much richer experience for me to make, a going, again, going back to that uniqueness of expressing and embedding metaphor or iconography in a museum that would, again, help stitch that back to a very definite place that you couldn't see anywhere else. So I think that flexibility is allowed, at least for me, to think out how do I take those qualities and say, hey, you know what? You're visiting this place. You're never going to visit anything like this again. And this is the only time you're going to see this. So that those are the things, whatever they are, whether it's forms out of artifacts that are abstracted or different stories or connections to the site. These are the things that that I try to look for to stitch stitch that experience together. And I think part of that also comes out of the dialogue with the broader team at the time, we'll certainly do our best to work with all the folks on the interpretive side to begin to think about what those commonalities are and what would help stitch the whole story together. So I think that's really, to me, I think hopefully in something that will last over time, it'll be enduring. But again, it's all tied to the ilk of what's in, in this container we're creating. I have a follow-up question on a previous point. I'm gonna I'm about to do a halftime show, but I'm gonna give you the question. I'm gonna <laughs> do this little halftime and maybe think about it because it's a big question. Yeah. What do you think in your experience? Because your the last point was what do you yeah. think is the number one thing that you have seen result in the failure of a museum in your experience? Mold that over for a second. I'm gonna yeah. do a halftime show. Here's a quick station identification. If you're just joining, you're listening to Making the Museum. I'm Jonathan Alger. And this is a project of C&G Partners, Design for Culture. 
If you find this show valuable, please help spread the word. You can rate the show in Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can write a review in Apple Podcasts. Or you can just tell a friend to check out makingthemuseum.com for everything about this podcast and its older sister, the newsletter. Now back to the show. Today we are talking with David Greenbaum, architects, architect of museums, about how to build a museum. We've got point number four coming up. I want to come back to that question I dropped in your lap before the halftime. What is the number one thing that you have seen result in museums failing? I don't have a number one thing, Jonathan, but I'll, I'll mention a couple of stories here, which have been interesting. And, and I'm not sure, again, how do we fix these things? We don't always know that they're coming our way. And I, I think I mentioned one where a, a client wanted to use role players, interactors in an experience to guide people through different exhibits. And at the end of the day, the client couldn't afford to put the interactors in that experience and had to go back and change all of the exhibits to, to add signage and made it self-help. And it undermined that whole experience. And this was part of the vision. So there was that disconnect between what was affordable versus what the vision was. And I think that honestly was an important lesson. And I don't, and it's hard to always know when that's going to happen, but you can also look at a scenario when the client envisions lots of evening events and excitement happening after hours, and you go into a community and you see the streets are rolled up after five o'clock and you're thinking, how is this museum going to change that? So again, I'm always trying to, I, I love the optimism because it's so important to have the optimism to do projects like this, but sometimes you've got to sit back and say, okay, what if this doesn't work the way we're thinking? And that's what's going to produce unpredictable change in these projects. The other thing, I guess, that, that came to mind that was a little disappointing is believing in certain types of technology and doing a building about that and having that technology change over time so the building becomes unwound. And I'll throw out a term, and it's not meant to be pejorative, but we work with a large format theater situation and the market shifted away from that. And you design a project with a large format theater in mind and, and you go to the trouble of putting in dispersed ADA access, large screens, heavy sound attenuation, and you find that original assumption goes away. So that forces change in a project. Is that failure? No, but that's change of the program that forces renovation and reconfiguration. And and I guess we never really know where the next investment in technology is going to take us and what how long that lifespan is going to be. Maybe that's just the way it is. And we have to embrace those when we can, but realize those are short-term projects in a way. Right. Oh. It's the it's the gerbil being misunderstood to yeah. be the elephant again. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's probably cool not going to last very long. I guess there are outliers to that. There are technologies, depending on how you define the word technology, there are technologies that, that last a very long time, but not forever. Mm -hmm. No technology lasts forever. Whereas buildings, if you think of a building as being something, buildings are, I, I guess, in a sense, engineered systems for life support, if you will. But if you think about them as simple structures, of stone and glass and steel, those things will last 
it's much more likely that you will have a existing form of a building when they make the Planet of the Apes movie about your area than you will have a large format theater or an LED wall that's still at all serviceable at that time. Just well, last, we, they just last longer. We want these museum buildings to last. And I think as we start to look at maintaining our carbon footprints and trying to reduce the impact on the earth, the ability to adapt these buildings is really critical. And obviously making the right kind of building to begin with is really important because theoretically we're making 200-year buildings, right? That's the investment we're looking to do. And I think that's that's important not to get lost on that and, and it always be thinking about the future and that lifespan that, um, that that's really, to me, a very important piece of this. Well, I unlocked a whole thing asking about failure, but point number four is there is one visitor experience, <laughs> art, architecture, and interpretation need to be integrated. I guess uh, it's right from the visitor's point of view. They just have one experience during their day or their trip. It's only on the professional side that you're an architect and I'm designing experiences or exhibitions, but for the visitor, they don't really care, right? Is that what you're getting at here, that there's just one experience that also be integrated, break down the silos? Again, it's all part of a storytelling effort for me. And I want nothing worse than having a disconnect between the building and the stories that are being told in it, in my opinion. I feel like there needs to be, they don't have to literally be the same, but I enjoy that close collaboration between interpreter and the architectural stories, things come together. The pacing of the visitor experience, how do we integrate art into that experience? How does art tell the story and set the mood? I just think that's so critical. Again, it it goes to this impactful truth experience and memorable experience that we're trying to drive from. But, and I do realize that there are, going back to your gerbil analogy, there are different lifespans for exhibits versus building, but I still think the more we can do to make these things feel seamless, even though they're different, the better. I mean, the building has a responsibility to be a good host to multiple exhibits and needs, needs to introduce those exhibits or at least be the sorbet between courses, that's that sort of responsibility in the path that, that I think is essential to make these happen. And of course, I, it's going to depend on the content of the museum. In an art museum, it's a very different balance than a story-driven museum. Whether you're dealing with artifacts or story, I mean, that, that could take you in different directions. But for me, that thread of the architecture weaving in and helping the interpretive planning tell the story, that's really important. And then I think that is spawned by going back to the first piece on Esprit de Corps, close collaboration. I think that's really key. Having frequent touch points, checking in, looking, sharing materials, sharing ideas about approach allows us to iteratively do course correction and iteratively develop that design. I think that's the thing I look forward to. But the visitor doesn't know any of this, right? So they come into this mm-hmm. and they have one visit. God, that was a great museum. Why was it great? And I think trying to make that all come to pass through all of those different visits and experiences, that's at the end of the day, that's what you want to see. You want to look at what Google's telling you and TripAdvisor, how well did that museum do? 
how are people responding to that and do they like it? And that to me is a benchmark worth looking at. Third party review, feedback. I think that's a measure of success in the short term, but that's again, people's people don't differentiate between these different things so much. Oh. Speaking of gerbils and elephants, you, just a moment ago, you said that the goal is to make 200-year buildings. Yeah. I'll go back to that for just a second. Is that the goal? Because that's quite a goal. That's my goal. I think the idea to have a museum get torn down in short order, and we've seen that happen in many places. It happens for a variety of reasons, but mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's disappointing because the level of investment and thought that gets put into these things, and you just you want to be thoughtful about building buildings at last that endure. And that's not to say they shouldn't be adapted because they need to be adapted. They, things change. That's pretty much a given. That is 200 yeah. years. Is that a, I'm an architect fallen from grace, so I don't know the answer to this. You will know the answer. Is that a real goal? Is that an achievable goal? Buildings that'll last 200 years? Sounds like it should be. Is it? Well, we go to Europe, we go to China, we can see buildings that are lasting many years. Well, that's it's right. Say, it's not to say that they're going to be without change. But I think when you're working with institutions, I think you want to have a structure that's enduring. Your point number five is exactly that. Is about yeah. uh, Point number five is build to last, mm-hmm. use long-lasting materials and building systems. I'd like to ask about what you define as a building system and to de- design with flexibility in mind and provide a robust infrastructure. Okay, you hit four points into this last one. Build to last, <laughs> Use long-lasting materials and building systems, design yep. with flexibility in mind, and provide a robust infrastructure. Let's, uh, we've been just been talking about build to last. Yep. What, is it, what are long-lasting materials? What do you mean by that? And what is a long-lasting building system? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to actually reverse the order here if I care for yeah. you. Because I, I think the hardest thing to understand is what does flexibility mean? Flexibility to me is... There's an aspect of redundancy in planning, building planning that allows many things to happen over time where serviceability can come in or public circulation allows for different things to happen. But I think if you don't have a building that has the ability to change and adapt, then you're not going to get to a 200-year building. It's got to be endemic in, in, in the layout. And the quality of the spaces, the size, the heights of the ceilings, the supporting facilities around it that's so important that gives it the bones of being able to change. And and change, as we know, is inevitable and it's sometimes unpredictable. And part of that is also having, particularly in the case of a museum where you've got continued demand and shifting demands on technology, it's, a pro- it, it's important to have the infrastructure in place, whether it's cable trains or structural grids or any number of engineering systems in place, could be under floor ducts, things like that, that allow for rapid turnover of exhibit spaces or no exist yet. Mm-hmm. Those are essential to me to put it in. And, and people tend to neglect that infrastructure largely because some think it's in the exhibits budget and the arch- the exhibit folks think it's in the architecture budget. It typically gets left out, but that could be a cost, $150 a square foot that needs to be identified in a project. And that's essential. And I think as you start to also look to specifying and picking materials, 
I've worked on projects where the client, even though finishes are a very small portion of the budget, quite frankly, but not picking the right materials that, that won't endure weather and not just weather from the outside, but weather on the inside, wear and tear of visitors, just is going to require you to go back and maintain them time and time again. So I think thinking about what can be, what are noble materials, whether it's masonry or stone or different types of metals or glass, things that, that we know will endure under multiple weather conditions without having to be replaced. That's really important. And relatively low maintenance is also key. The ability to get to these things, to, to service them are really important. How do you provide hanging and access points to get to, to clean the glass, to clean the stone, whatever it is, and then making sure the interior surfaces can be durable enough to stand up to the number of guests that are anticipated. Are the stairs wide enough to accommodate the crowds? Are the elevators big enough to handle kids with backpacks and things like that? These are all important aspects of contributing to wear and tear. Same with the restrooms and even the circulation in public space. When you think about did we right-size things to feed people feel comfortable in the space? And what happens when folks are bringing in all these these coats and jackets? And how do we accommodate them? To, they clean their feet. <laughs> all these sorts of things have everything to do with looking at that broader lifespan of maintaining and making sure that the building's there for a while, I think. Excellent. Oh, this is Amazing. I have, as I always do, I've been taking notes as fast as I can, but I think we just had a masterclass and I think we've gotten it down. I'm so surprised that your list had five things on it. Your original title on the list was just five things. That was the title. Um, <laughs> I think it's amazing that you can boil it down to that, but now I see why. First of all, you snuck four things into your last point. So it's actually, <laughs> what, eight things? No, I'm just pulling your egg. No, I think it's great. I think it's great. They're all no. related. So Let's do a, a quick recap here. This is our list for today. We've been talking with David Greenbaum, architect of museums, about how to build a museum. First point, surprise to me. Number one, the importance of esprit de corps. Number two, consider the full, parenthesis, life cycle. Mission, vision, design, construction, operations. And don't forget that museums do fail. We talked about why they might. Generally, they seem to fail, not for architectural reasons. Number three, celebrate the uniqueness. Be bold or be subtle, depending, but be memorable. Number four, there's only one visitor experience from the visitor's point of view. Art, architecture, and interpretation need to be integrated for them. And number five, build to last. Use long-lasting materials and building systems. Provide a robust infrastructure. And it's all about flexibility, design with flexibility in mind. It sounds like, ironically, the thing that makes a stable and lasting and durable museum is a museum that is able to be a little unstable and be a little flexible in its purpose. To get the, the durability, you need to be changeable a little bit, which is ironic or philosophical or poetic, but a, a good point to end on, I think. How did I do? Did I get that right? Oh. Excellent recap. Thank you so much. That's your list. I'm just a student. I've always learned a lot from working with you, and now I feel like I have the notes to prove it. David Greenbaum, <laughs> it has been great to have you on this show. Thank you, Jonathan. Really appreciate the invitation. It's great to chat with you. As a if Likewise, if listeners would like to get in touch with you, what is the best way for them to do that? Email, 
website, LinkedIn. We'll put it in the show notes as well, but yeah, you could spell um, it out here your best uh, way. I'm happy to be reached on email or phone, actually. My email is david underscore greenbaum, G-R-E-E-N-B-A-U-M, at gensler.com. And I'm also happy to take calls at 202-257-7592. Awesome. Okay. I think we covered it. Thank you, dear listener, for your time. In exchange, I hope this episode gave you some news you can use. If you would like to get in touch with me or you have an idea for the show, go to makingthemuseum.com, hit contact. You can also find me on LinkedIn under Jonathan Alger or at the website of my firm, C&G Partners. Everything that we talked about today, we'll have that in the show notes for you here. By the way, this podcast has an older sister. It's a one-minute newsletter under the same name, Making the Museum. One quick insight each time for museum leaders, exhibition teams, and visitor experience pros. Subscribe at makingthemuseum.com. There's a big subscribe button in the menu at the top. Meanwhile, I'm Jonathan Alger, and I hope you'll join me next time for Making the Museum. Bye for now.